Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland, your Second World War podcast. I'm, I hope it's the only one you listen to, um, if I'm quite honest with you. Um, and maybe listen to twice, so you help the numbers. <laughs> um, I should point out that you were you were a little bit late coming on, weren't you? Because your your picture. I was playing Company of Heroes. Company of Heroes three. <laughs> obviously, we're doing a little bit of a promo of that, but but it's not hard work for you, is it? <laughs> well, uh, so well, where were you? Have you have you have you well, landed no, at Salerno? Are you still well, in North no, Africa? No, I was using the skirmish mode to get used to how to r- run the battle groups and stuff. Oh There's right, a, okay. The, so this is just training. It's basically a training You're mode. School. Yeah, basically. <laughs> With Lionel Wigram, yeah. Um, Lionel Wigram. <laughs> um, Wouldn't it be yes. amazing if he really was a character, isn't it? Well, it, it would be It would be something else. No, so, um, yes, yeah, so I was having a we go We should do that. a whole thing on Lionel Wigram at some point. Well, we should talk about the battle schools, yeah, uh, 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 that whole idea. Cause, because um, uh, uh, we had a lot of interesting – a lot of people very interested in the Slam Marshall episode we did with John McManus the yes. other day. Yeah, um, yeah, on, yeah, yeah. On that, was, that was USA. fascinating, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and, and – and, Someone pointed out all the um, uh, 0.45 ammunition that we thought was pistol ammunition was probably Tommy gun ammunition because it's yeah, the same, that's a very good point. It's the same. Yeah, round. But even, but so. even so, even so, even <laughs> so, they're shipping know. an awful lot of ammunition. Someone popped up and said, "What? A, maybe, maybe, maybe this is people stealing the ammunition." Nah, no, no that's not. It's no, because what are they going to do with it? it? Trou- put it in their trousers and send it home. Um. I, anyway. Um. Uh, Yes, so I was playing. I was playing Company Heroes Three, which um, I, it, it it you know it's that thing where you you have to manage your resources and and uh, and and also at the same time you have to keep momentum going in the battle because if you if you sit around managing your resources while yeah. you're um while you're and don't engage the enemy or at least keep an eye on what he's doing he will um overpower you which is what what always happens on those sort of ai games um but um, Got you. always always happened to me anyway i'm sure there are people who are much more um well, able and adept than i am at it but there you go well talking about about, about scales of ammunition all right so, so darby's <laughs> rangers who had yeah. they had only two battalions of their of their uh, which are, which are kind of you know by a normal infantry battalion are, are yeah. smaller, yeah. Um, and he had the, he the, they were on this mountain called Monte Corno, which is so you you go up from Naples, yep. You get across the Volturno, yep. heading up. You know, suddenly there's mountains on your left, there's mountains on the right, and there's a sort of there's the upper Volturno River, yeah, which comes through this little winding valley, and behind yep. it is a big block of mountains called Monte Croce and Monte Corno. 
They're yeah. really steep, and they come. They go straight up. Vanafro, the little town of Vanafro, is is right on it. And then you go round the corner, and round the corner is Monte Rotondo, Monte Lungo, the Mignano yeah. Gap, San Pietro, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But the first sort of blocking bit is these two mountains, and the Rangers were sent up there at the beginning of I don't know, like the 9th of November, nineteen forty three, or something like that. Yeah. And they were supported by the eighty third Chemical Mortar um, ah, Battalion, yes. which of course were not obviously always carry chemical shells, but but don't fire yeah. them. They're just normally yeah. mortar and it, teams. And is it them who have the terrible accident um, uh, where a ship full of... In, uh, in Bari, yeah. In Bari, yeah. yeah or is yeah. it Brindisi? I can't remember. I can't, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, uh, not yes. at that point. Cool. Yeah. Anyway, in the in the 38 days that they're up up in this mountain, which coincidentally is the same length as, as the whole Sicilian campaign, yeah. they fire 38,000 mortars... <laughs> Cheapest. Thirty-eight thousand. Yeah. In a thirty-eight day camp thirty-nine day campaign, did you say? But, but it's not a campaign. It's just well, a, well, a, a tiny bit of the battle where this lot happened to be on a mountain going absolutely phase. nowhere. Should we call it a, a phase? phase? A phase. Yeah. yeah. But that's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a thousand this shells. Is, this is breaking the winter line, breaking the Bernhardt line, whichever Jesus way Christ. Thirty eight thousand that's a thousand mortars a, thousand a day. Mortars a day. <laughs> How many how many tubes would they have had in that company? I don't know. I've just got to try and work that out. But you know, quite a lot. But yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying they, they wouldn't have. But, had not but many. even so, jeepers, dunk, dunk. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dunk. Lovely little but, town. I mean, you, I mean you, you, but but then you see that. Do you remember that footage we were looking at yeah. in Normandy? Of, of I think yeah. it was wasn't it the Wessex Division? Yeah, firing mortars, and you can see they literally just plop them in. Yeah, yeah. Which is the great thing yeah. about a mortar, of course. Which is um, great thing about mortar, but you can but, really you can really uh, uh, lay it on thick, can't you? If you've got the ammunition, yeah, 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 yeah. So Derby is, is interesting because because of course he set up the Rangers in in. So he was he was an aide to Major General Hartle, hmm. who was Russell L. Hartle, I think he was, uh, or P. Hartle. I can't remember what the what yeah. the. The, the the second name is, but anyway, he he and the thirty fourth Red Bulls division, which were the first um, yeah. National Guard Midwestern based division to come over to, to yeah. the UK in in early January nineteen forty two, and I think the first troops yeah. landed in twenty fourth of January nineteen forty two, if I remember rightly. Yeah, and he was sort of sitting around, and they were kind of you know training in Northern Ireland and all the rest of it, and he was twiddling his thumbs and getting really bored. Mm. And George Marshall, General George Marshall, who was the commander in chief of the um, Obviously, of of the you know not commander in chief, you know he's the chief of staff of the U.S. Army. Yeah, he kind of likes the color of the jib of of the commandos, and so he packs off Colonel then Colonel Lucian Truscott. Ah, I know yeah. that name. Yeah, yeah. I know that name. Who later becomes Third uh, Infantry Division Commander and then Sixth Corps co- Commander. Hmm. He gets posted off to Combined Operations, which at that time is being run by Louis Mountbatten. Yeah. And with a view to kind of, you know, can you check out this whole kind of commando malarkey and see what see what you think? Yeah. And so Truscott gets his ass up to Scotland and watches them all training and stuff and thinks, God, this is great. You know, we should definitely, definitely do this. Yeah. And recommends to Marshall that they go for it. And so Marshall goes and he says, says but I don't think we should call them the commandos because, you know, the Brits have nabbed that one. You know, it's a bit, you know, we don't want to be kind of look like the same. And, you know, we might want to be subtly different. So let's have a different name. And he and Marshall remembers the the something rangers. I can't remember what they were called. The, the something beginning of our sort of Richards rangers, rallies rangers. Right. right. Riders rangers. I can't remember what they were. Anyway, whatever. From the pre-revolutionary war period. 
Right. You know, these are the people that are fighting, you know, the French yeah. in the Seven Years' War and all the rest of it in the kind of mid-18th century. Yeah. And he goes, let's call them the Rangers. And everyone goes, God, that's genius. Love that. And off they go. And so they get inaugurated on, I think they get the order goes out on the 8th of June. And because um, um, Bill Darby is this kind of 1933 class West Pointer, yeah. Sort of, you know, square-jawed, blue-eyed, good-looking, handsome from, from uh, I think he's from Oklahoma or Arkansas or somewhere like that. Mm. Uh, um, but, but a very competent, you know, young 30-something, young thruster who's yeah. itching to do something. They go, okay, well, you can organise it. You do it. So he <laughs> suddenly gets the kind of gig of his life and sets it all up. And they all go off and they, you know, they're all equipped with kind of Tommy Brody helmets at this point yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And they go off and do training with the commandos at sort of Aknakari and all the rest of it. And and the, and the Rangers are born, and they're sent off to to North Africa, and then they're in Sicily, and you know by this stage they they they're turned into the U.S. Army Ranger Force with mm. four battalions, and they fight all the way through. And Derby fights all the way; it goes all the way through, and until April nineteen forty five, he goes back in nineteen forty four, and he's back home doing sort of you know reports reports and training and and, and talking to the kind of bigwigs yeah. at Washington and all the rest of it. sets down um, sits down and talks to someone and does a whole kind of record of his life and and his his career with the with the Rangers. goes back to Italy, and in April nineteen forty five, is killed by, by a shell. Really, so that's him gone. Yeah, right. Age thirty four, thirty three. He's, he's gone back to Italy with um, to do observations. Do with Hap Arnold. That's he's doing. He's, he's sent back no, to just yeah, observe. maybe. But he goes. But he goes back to take command of Tenth Mountain Division. Anyway. Well, yeah, and then and then obviously can't can't help but get involved. Is the is yeah. the is the thing. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it's interesting. But obviously, I mean, the Rangers are the Rangers of Pontehawk and all the rest of it, and and you know they're they're still there. But the irony is now is that the, in the British Army, people are being we called Rangers. Rangers um, to be like the Rangers, who didn't want to be like the Commandos, even though they're obviously Commandos. I know, oh, isn't that amazing? The, the weird wheel of history at work there. Um, uh, yeah. I, I've just put Vanafro looks rather lovely. If you look at if you if you go to Google Images for Vanafro, well, rather yeah. a lovely water feature in the town square, um, uh, rather beautiful. I imagine it was. I imagine it was completely rebuilt. Or there's a castle. It's all rather. Yeah. So yeah, Vanafro is absolutely King. lovely. It's one of those beautiful, beautiful places. Place. It's got an absolutely gorgeous Romanesque church just yeah. on the edge of town as you're sort of going sort of southwards. But if you if you look on Google Earth, which of course mm. enables you to then do um do 3D, yeah. you can absolutely see the two peaks. So so Monte yeah. is on the right hand side if you've got Vanafro behind you. Yeah. Sort of the northern side. And and Monte Corno is the one. And look at those ridges. I mean, they're up there for for yeah, thirty five yeah, yeah. days or something. It, it's yeah. bonkers. Yeah, blimey, look at it. Uh, yes, going absolutely nowhere. So yeah. you know, constantly is this kind of we've got to get to Rome, got to get to Rome. We've got to get to Rome before Christmas. What we've got to do is get to Rome before Christmas. Yes. <laughs> and, and some of your best troops are sat on a mountain, and on and after a very short time, it becomes absolutely clear to Derby that that you know this is not a one battalion job, but actually you need a second battalion. So they get the 509th PII, who is still in theatre, yeah. just about to go back to England. They take over Monte Croce, and yeah. they go absolutely nowhere. Yeah, well, because in that time, because going nowhere is. The thing, isn't it? I mean, the lonely it's, mountain. Uh, it's all so difficult. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, Jim, um, am I right in thinking though that um, this campaign is so enormous and so complex, <laughs> and also on some level uh, so dispiriting 
that your book will also not be over by Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I've been, I've been building up to this moment, to be honest. I, I've, I've been having sort of mounting panic, which you may or may not have picked up. Um, I mean, basically, the problem is, is, is uh, it, it's my fault. I, I suddenly realised that this. Well, basically, what was exciting me about about this book was was the prospect of writing it in a different way than yeah. the way I've done it before. I mean, obviously, lots of things which are exactly the same as all my earlier works, and in sort of yeah. stylistically. Yeah. But what I really wanted to move away from was dependence on oral testimonies. Yeah. Given kind of fifty years, sixty years after the event, and not because yeah. they're unreliable. But more because perspectives change and priorities change as you get older, and, and memory yeah. plays tricks a little bit. Yeah. Whereas what I wanted was, and, and what I picked up from doing Brothers in Arms, you know, the, about the Sherwood Rangers. Yeah. Was I, I just found it completely fascinating the immediacy you get from letters and diaries, which are written in the moment. You know, they don't know yeah. when the war's going to end. They don't know yeah. what's around the corner, whether they're going to yeah. live or die, and consequently, as a as a as a reader, you don't know whether these guys are going to get through either, because Obviously, if someone's talking to you sixty years on, they've made it. <laughs> so you're you're immediately reducing your dramatic jeopardy. Yeah. And of course, as we all know, you know, the, life's not like that. Particularly when you're in a kind of war zone, it's a very brutal and dangerous thing. So yeah. I wanted people to be coming and going and getting wounded and 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 being and, and getting killed and stuff. Well, I didn't want them being killed, obviously, but you're not talking no. About. Uh, and I wanted that immediacy. So I've decided to kind of sort of challenge myself and try and write it in the moment. So not forward project at all. Yeah. Um, not have a kind of sort of knowing authorial knowledge mm. 80 mm. years on or anything like that. Yeah, I just yeah. wanted to tell it as it unfolded and yeah. see from a top level, but also from a lower level, how strategy changed, how approaches changed, what the guys on the ground were thinking as well. I mean, because mm. what's happening at the top level is just as interesting. You know, how yeah. the, the the language that is going from the from combined chiefs of staff down to the poor old commanders having to fight this thing. You know, obviously their language is changing as their hopes you know aspirations yeah. expectations change and evolve whether depending yeah. on which side you you know regardless of whether you're german or, or or british or american or whatever so all of that's been quite interesting but the way i always do my books is to follow a a, a very defined yes, a cast. cast of characters yeah. that you follow all the way through and, the, and the, the point of that rather than just having lots and lots of different people who give one one line quote it's so that as a reader, you get to empathise with them. You get mm. to understand them and get to know them as, as human beings. Yeah. Uh, which I think helps sort of suck you into the whole drama of it. Yeah, yeah. The problem is, is because when I was doing Sicily, that was 38 days plus a bit of build-up. Um, Normandy was 77 days plus a bit of build-up. Whereas yeah. from the invasion of, of, of Italy to the fall of Rome is nine and a half months. Yeah. So, <laughs> Uh, when you've done the build-up, yeah, and so I suddenly realised, uh, you know, I was, I was having to sort of axe characters and having to kind of hurry through things, which I yeah. and, and bin stuff that I didn't want to bin, that I yeah. felt was was being detrimental to the book, and was not, and what I was going to end up with was a nine-month campaign, which just wasn't the book I wanted it to yeah. be because it would be too thin. Yeah. So much for the soft underbelly of Europe, Jim, basically. Exactly <laughs> that. Exactly that. And so I didn't want to, um, equally, I didn't want to build a, um, you know, greatest respect to Peter. I didn't mm. want to do a PCA and have a kind of huge yeah. doorstep of kind of, you know, four billion pages and yeah. half a million words. So yeah. I suddenly realised that actually there is a narrative arc that takes you to 
the end of the year in 1943. Mm. And mm. the other thing, of course, because no one's really written about 1943, but, uh, except sort of en passant. The last person to kind of sort of do it in any detail, I suppose, was Rick Atkinson. But he's only looking, in his trilogy that he did, he's only really looking at, at the US Army. I'm he pays lip service to the British and stuff, and but but there's nothing about the air forces, there's nothing about the Italians, there's nothing about the civilians really. Yeah. Uh, again, apart from sort of you know in passing. So, yeah. I think it's a it's a hopefully a much richer and rewarding <laughs> read as a result of this. But consequently, I'm now going to I'm doing um, uh, the the book is going that comes out in September will be from August 1943 through yeah. to you know from the end of the Sicilian campaign through to the end of the year. And you know, there's all these battles where, where you know, there are more guns than there were at Alamein, and no one's ever heard of them. I mean, it's yeah, just incredible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's nice to kind of put them back on the map. Um, and although people might not know about it, I'm hoping that people who are interested in casino will also be interested in this because well, obviously it feeds into casino. Anything that puts 1943 on the map, Jim, is a good is a good thing. You know, yeah, well, it, it's, it's just been so interesting. I've, I've found it yeah. really, really interesting. So, so I can honestly say, hand on heart, that this is this is going to be no less interesting for, 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 so, from, so how long for people. So, like how me. long will the part one be now? Because because you were well, you much were, more manageable. You know, much well, yeah, more manageable. Kind of hundred and sixty thousand words, which yeah. is a nice sort of you know that's a kind of sort of big week level downbusters yeah. level book. Yeah, yeah, um, which I yeah. think everyone can can sigh, have a big sigh of relief about. Um, <laughs> Certainly, and, and then the... I'll just crack on and keep going on with Casino and finish it. But it won't be. Yeah. They won't be volume one, volume two. There'll be two totally standalone books. Right. But the first one. But I'm going to write them together yeah so i'm literally just about a hand in the first one yeah i'm now pretty much done just tidying that up right and then that will come out in september and then i will carry on writing casino yeah get it done yeah because i'm in a i'm in the zone and i've got all the characters and i've done all the research it's just a question of you know writing it out and, and that will come out uh kind of you know in a year's time i suppose now jim i mean uh, uh, one of the things we have done we've both done on uh, a fair bit on the podcast is talked about the process of writing and and all that sort of thing this is the first time you've done this right taking a book and had to go no I've yeah got to- I've, I've i've been really really panicking about it i've been really really sweating about it because i didn't want to compromise on the material because the material yeah. is so good i mean one of the guys i'm just hastily putting back in you know he's a cipher clerk at a engine division yes you told and, and, you me know, about him yeah he's you know he's I'd, I'd axed him because he's not in the front line but he is in the front line but he's not you know he's not a, a, a combatant in the traditional sense of the word but the mm. insights he gives you into how things work and and the kind of the nature of a makeup of these armies is just so interesting it's it's so yeah. fascinating yeah and it's not worth stinting on i don't think i, th- yeah. I think he's i think he's actually one of the you know, one of the really good characters in the book. And I'm just really happy that, that he's back in it. So I feel in myself, I feel very, very happy that this is the right call, but obviously with no small amount of nerves that I'm, I'm venturing in doing a a narrative history of a, of a part of a campaign that no one's ever really written about before, which could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing. Oh, I'm, I'm sure I speak for all of the listeners when I say, um, it's going to be a good thing, Jim. Don't don't you wait. Well, it is. It is. A, I, I can't vouch for the writing, but I can certainly vouch for the material, which is absolutely. I've been blown away by this. I mean, you know, some of the from from the German guys that I've been writing about. You know, some of the stuff they say, and because it's in the moment, you get these guys. Yeah. You get this 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 absolutely angst. this guy called Jörg Zellner, who's a, a, a battalion commander in the forty fourth Hockendeutschmeister division. Mm. 
which at the start of the war is up in of the campaign is up in um, Rommel's lot in Army Group B up in the in the it's actually in the in the Brenner Pass doing kind of sort of dis, disarming of Italians. And then they get moved down to the front in, you know, when 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 Kessering takes over and, and Rommel gets kicked into touch, which is what so so basically what happens is is originally in the Italian you know, the Germans are kind of they, they don't know what to do. They don't know where, what they should do. And there's there's two plans afoot. What one is to is to retreat north of Rome and just abandon the southern part of Rome. Yeah. And the second one is to fight south of Rome. So at the start of when the when the Allies land Albert Kesselring, who is a Luftwaffe field marshal, but has been, you know, commander in chief of German forces in the south in the Mediterranean, um, he is in charge of whatever German troops there are in southern Italy, and he's the guy who makes the call to make the stand, you know, at Salerno yeah. when the when the when the Americans and, and British land on the 9th of September, and he's also um, um, vying with. Rommel, who is Army Group B commander in the north of Italy, yes. and who plans to retreat to the what's known as the Pisa Rimini line, which is you know 150 miles, 200 miles north of Rome, yeah, and abandon the whole of southern Italy. And Rommel is very much Hitler's favourite, and and you know doesn't have much truck with Kesselring, all things considered. But gradually, gradually, Kesselring persuades Hitler that actually what they want to do is fight south of Rome and, and fight for every yard and all the rest of it. Yeah. So Rommel is kicked into long touch and sent off to the Atlantic Wall. And and Kesselring then takes over as Supremo in Italy, which then means that all those divisions, which have been in Army Group B under Rommel, are now available to Kesselring. Yeah. Yeah. So he starts sending them south. Yeah. And one of them is this 44th Hocken Deutschmeister um, division. And seeing this guy, Jörg Zellner, who is in his early 30s, who is married with children in Regensburg, which is regularly being hammered by bombers and all the rest of it, talk about his angst about where's the war going? What are we doing this for? You know, the war is so completely pointless. You know, future generations will look back on this and just think, how did this ever happen? All this kind of stuff. But I've got to do it because I look around and I see you know, ruined ruined villages and towns in Italy. I see streams of refugees and I realise that that's what's going to happen in Germany if we're not careful. So God. we have to keep on fighting. And, and, and it's just amazing. But, but I mean, they all, they all, he knows that they're going backwards, doesn't he? Yes, I mean, of course he own, does, but they don't want to admit it. They're only ever going to go backwards, aren't they? That, that this is, I mean, this is the thing that's, when you think about this campaign that's remarkable really is, is that, there is only there is only one direction the German army is 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 going in, and that's north. Yeah, and it and it no matter how staunchly it defends any position, in the end it's going to withdraw. It it it, it, it yes, but but if you keep on fighting, then something might happen. Something might well, but it's it's something might come up, turn up, isn't it? It's, Something um, might turn up. Then you know you it, might get a wonder weapon. You know the the, the <laughs> some some other existential threat might 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 do for the Western Allies, and they might actually decide actually they don't want to fight in Italy anymore. And yeah, they, yeah, uh, I just know, think you know, it's all of course. So they, but that's what they're clutching straws at. Because what's bear, the alternative? What's the yeah, alternative? Yeah. Well, the alternative is that, is that you um you uh, you, you, well, you, you you sue for peace and you and I you know, try you and hang on because you've hang got on to the, what you've gained because you can't. I. Well, no. I'll tell you what. We'll take a break, and we'll come. We'll come back, and we'll we'll we'll, we'll argue about this a bit more because I think this is really, really interesting. Well, I do too. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. We'll see you in a tick.
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Weird Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. And Jim, here's the thing. Uh, is it, because by this point, unconditional surrender is the is the allied watchword, right? Yeah. And that's come about because they get dicked in um, during torch by uh, the, the French, Vichy French, basically, don't they? They're yep. made fools of by the Vichy French. And then and then everything goes wrong with trying to negotiate with the Italians. And, and, and you know, so they... The, the need for the need for unconditional surrender is 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 an allied need. Although Roosevelt, of course, springs it on on his partners, they don't know it's coming, and he and he sort of pulls it out of a hat and, and lands it on Churchill, who sort of has to accept unconditional surrender as as the way they're going to go forward. And in fact, what what then happens is the allies the allies. Uh, <sighs> It's very interesting because in the end, the negotiating the Allies do is amongst themselves as to what the peace will be and what the post-war settlement will be. And, and there's as much arm wrestling with the Soviet Union about how things are going to turn out after the war that's sort of in the sort of a proxy for a peace treaty, aren't they, in, in, mm. in essence? Do, do, you know what I mean? They're, 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 mm. they're, they're doing their negotiating about what the future of Europe is going to be like without the Germans involved in that negotiation. And, you know, these, these terrible deals at, at, at Tehran and Yalta about, about what's going to happen in Eastern Europe and Poland being sold down the river and all that stuff. But, but unconditional surrender, let, let, let's, let's just go back to what we were talking about. The Germans are always going backwards. How do you, you know, they all know that the, any, if you're in the German army, you know you're going north. You know you're going back to the next ridgeline north of you. You know you're, you know you're going to hang on to this mountain until someone decides that you've been degraded enough that what you need is to withdraw, right? Yeah. Let's 
what? Let's say someone dis. Let, I mean, what if? Because we know, don't we, that there there is contact between the Soviets and the Germans in 1943. Or there's suspicion of contact between the Soviets and the Germans via the Abwehr in 1943 to talk about peace feelers after Kursk. That they're... you know, it's debated to the the, the seriousness seriousness of these whether they happened or, or whatever. But let's say you're the you're the Stauffenberg faction, for instance, or yeah. an equivalent, and you come to the Allies in 1943 because you know you're losing. Yeah, are the Allies? bendable enough on unconditional surrender at this point? Would they go, you know, what? Well, it's interesting because, the, you know, the Italians are brought under, you know, they, they exactly. sign an armistice. they're coming under, under, un, under unconditional, unconditional surrender. surrender. But, but unconditional surrender is, is, is you know, within, within a month, they're co-belligerents. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. So it's not that bad. I mean, it is bad. Don't get me wrong. It is really, really bad. But 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 superficially, they're quite chummy. You know, all sitting around, yeah. palling around with Bedolio and, yeah. and, you know, and Ambrosio at all. Yeah. Yeah. You see... Uh, yeah, so- here we are. So I've just found this bit, bit with, 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 with Zellner. Okay, so it goes, the entire 44th Division was ordered south to the Italian front the very moment Kesselring was made supremo. Yep. On the 22nd of November, they began the journey south by train. There was a huge downpour of rain in the night, but Zellner awoke at 5 a.m. and early that morning, sunshine spread over the Apennines. First air raids, he noted. We stop in Foligno. We stretch our legs. We can't go any further as there's no water for the machines and the electrical system is disrupted by bomb damage. A night of drinking too much wine and discussing politics followed, after which Zellner vowed never to talk about politics again. It was pointless and only put him in a bad mood. They finally moved off once more at 3am, and by the time he woke up again, they were passing through beautiful countryside. How lovely it must be in peacetime, he thought. People beat each other to death over ideas that survive on the basis of the act of beating each other to death, he mused in his diary. And after the war, no one will know why they waged war. All the misfortunate will accuse the present generation. The widows and orphans will curse those responsible. But life will go on. The next generation will have forgotten everything. New buts will emerge. The youth will again become enthusiastic about war. The new misfortune, a war will begin again. Um, they reached the front at 25th of November. It was raining cats and dogs again, but Zellner wasn't complaining. It meant no yarbos overhead. Then they marched on foot to Chicano, a small town that lay in a plain between the mountains. The area was stunning, Zellner thought, and the town looked charming at a distance. But the poverty and misery here cannot be expressed in words, he noted. Fifteen people live in a room that would certainly not be a goat shed in our country. It's simply unbelievable that people can live like this. Some of his Russia veterans said the poverty was worse than in the Soviet Union. The fate of Italy was still on his mind a few days later when he was summoned to a conference in Rome. He had passed columns of refugees all day on a trip to and from the capital, and it made him wonder if Germany would share the same fate if it lost the war. So when we see images like these, he added, we always come back to the firm resolve to fight until our homeland is secure. On a personal level, he could hardly bear to think what losing would mean. Everything, he noted, would melt away into nothingness. So we fight on for the good cause. Yeah, you see, that's the, it's the, uh, what happens if we lose is the, is the critical. But isn't that amazing? So he's writing that, you know, that's on that day in November 1943. in that critical year of 1943, of Stalingrad, of Tunisgrad, yeah. of the strategic bomber offensive, of Operation Gomorrah and the yeah. destruction of Hamburg, etc., etc., of Kursk. I mean, 
I mean, I just, everything would be stunning, but, isn't it? But everything would be lost. Melt, uh, everything would, everything melt, would melt into melt nothingness. So we fight on for the good cause. The good cause. I mean, crikey. So what is the good? So, but still, so what is the good cause? And that—that's the interesting thing. Is that's the bit that's unsaid. He knows what the good cause is, so he doesn't need to. He doesn't need to tell us in his diary what the good no. cause is, does he? He doesn't need to. He doesn't need to relate that. I mean, it, I, we talked about this. It's, for me, nineteen forty-three is, is the year where those battles that basically tell you you've it's lost all, all occur. You can even forget forty forty-four. Yeah. Yeah. The, the battles, the battles that, that mean you would have gone. All right, we're done in the sort of old world. Have all happened in by 1943, haven't they? Really, in the end, there is that core mystery of what on earth is mobilising him, because the, the the good cause is what we don't know. What he what what does he mean? Does he mean Nazism? Does he mean the well, restoration I- of German pride post Versailles? Does he mean? A greater Germany. What? What does it? What's he fighting for? Because after all, you know, even when the Allies, he's fighting for the German homeland. That's what he's fighting yeah, for. Exactly. But he's fighting for his family, his mother yeah. in Regensburg, his kids, yeah. the yeah. future, future Germans. That's what he's fighting for. He thinks he's doing this. This. This sacrifice is so that, a favor his, to his grandchildren. So that, so, that his, so that his children can live in a peaceful world. Yeah. Yeah. Which is. Which is. I mean, after all, what an awful lot of um, Allied soldiers are fighting for, aren't they? It, it, well, it, they're also. I mean, you know, if you're if you're William Darby and the Rangers on the top of Monte Corno, what the ripping heck are you doing up there for thirty five <laughs> days on this on this bare knoll? I mean, this is you know, I mean, Monte Corno is is three thousand feet high. You know, so what's that? That's, yeah. a, that's a thousand meter high mountain. I mean, yeah. it's, this is not a small little bit of. This is not a hill somewhere in. You know, low hill in the Lake District. This is this mm. is. It was the highest. Your, the Scarfell Pike is it, it, mm. Monte Corno is higher than Scarfell Pike, yeah. which but is there's our your contrast high, highest though, mountain in England. But there, but there's your contrast and sort of the question at the heart of what's going on in 1943. Is you know is is how do you? It, it's pretty straightforward how you mobilise German soldiers at this point. The, the the world is against you, literally. Um, uh, your your backs to the wall. You know, it's not, they've not. I mean, after all, they didn't conquer Italy. They're they're, they're helping their, uh, as they see it, useless ally. So it's not even. It's just it's pretty straightforward. Like like I said, how you mob- your cities are being bombed, but you still population- disarmed a million people, a million well, troops. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But but if you're if you're At point if, of bayonet, effectively, yeah. But if you're but if you're trying to mobilise German soldiers at this point, mm. it's all pretty. It's a fairly straight line, isn't it? Your cities are being bombed. Uh, uh, you're on the back foot. The whole world is against you, and all your all you, you you don't even need to. If you see what I mean, you don't need to resort to the sort of deep Nazism uh, 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 propaganda to mobilise people, do you? He thinks he's as as far as we can tell. He thinks he's just fighting a sort of defensive war to protect his homeland. Yeah, and he, gets, it, like- and, and he gets, and, and once he's in the front line, he very quickly gets even more disillusioned, but knows yeah. he's got to keep going. But, but, then, know, but then how do you mobilise Americans and Brits? And how do you mobilise Indians fighting in, um, you know, it, 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 and Kiwis just and South Africans and Brazilians? Um, how yeah. on earth do you mobilise those people against? You know, the, 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 it's pretty. And, and you know, when, and when you, you know, you're not going to get executed for running away. 
Yeah. Well, exactly. Exactly. So, so this is the. So this is actually when people go, oh, you know, how on earth? Why on earth did the Germans keep fighting? Well, if you look at it from, you, you could look at it from their point of view, and you don't need the Nazism to explain it. That they think they're fighting the same way people in the First World War in Germany thought they were fighting a defensive war. They thought that they were doing what they could to protect the, the, the fatherland from outside aggressors. And whether those nations were outside aggressors or not, by the time it's Italy in, in the middle of 1943, America very much is an exterior aggressor. Uh, uh, yeah. From that point of view, uh, it, you know, always got to qualify this. Whereas if you are, in a, you know, if you're a GI from Illinois, or, or Boise, Idaho, I'm, I'm, and I'm just picking names out of the hat. What on earth is? How on earth do you mobilise those people? It's a far. It's far more difficult for yep. the Allies to mobilise, motivate their men than it is for the Germans. I would. Yep. I would. I would say. Yeah. And that's before you get into. And and then of course, as you as you as you rightly point out, that the 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 Germans are backed by a terror state. So, um, uh, 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 you know, the apparatus of terror to get people to do what they want to do as well. In a way, but there is the- definitely yes, but but, the, but there is definitely from a German point of view, there is definitely this this feeling. We we have to keep fighting because the alternative is too awful, and I suspect yeah. that that that's in the minds of a lot of Ukrainians who are kind of sort of oh, you know yeah. worrying about about whether they're going to get enough arms, whether they're going to have enough shells, whether they're going to be able to hold off the kind of you know the Russian hordes, all the rest of it. You know, if you're if you're you know, on the front line in the Donbass. Yes, but the difference you, you is know you're you, losing lots of people. And I know you're defending your country, you, you know, you're fighting for your country, but you're you're fighting for your future, aren't you? You're, you're still thinking, yeah. I'm going to keep fighting because what's the alternative? Well, yes, but the, but the difference is this Ukraine has been invaded, whereas, you know, the, Germany started it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> without, without, yes, no, no, without, I know, without. I know, but 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 if you fail, the 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 result is ruined yeah, yeah, cities. Yeah, yeah. Um, your whole life turned upside down. Everything thrown into disarray. Yeah, and no idea of what your future is. Um, yeah, and no exactly. idea what your future is. So so the the net result is the, is the is the key thing here. Yeah. Um. And and I think you can sort of understand that. I, it's. But why people fight is is such a sort of complex and and. I mean, at this I mean, point, at this, I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, a wonder weapon turning up. At this point, there is wonder weapon propaganda, isn't there, coming out of coming out of Berlin? So that so that that is a thing that is on on people's minds, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, 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 um, although you know they're they're not ready yet, and they're not being made public yet. They're being sort of dangled at people as a as a um, don't worry, the Führer's got a trick up his sleeve. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a lot of analysis of, of of prisoners of war, German prisoners of war, yeah. and, and most of them. What they tend to do is they need to come out and, you know, if they're actually German as opposed to Polish or Czech or whatever, um, they tend to be quite bullish when they're when they're first captured. Mm. You know, we're yeah. going to be fine. We're cool because we're going to win. You know, wonder weapons, yeah. blah, 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 we'll be fine. And then then there is this colossal breakdown the moment they get taken to the rear areas and they just see how much material the Allies have got compared to yeah. them, and they kind yeah. of go, holy moly. Yeah, we've got no chance. Yeah, well, and they know about Peenemünde, don't they? From people at um, Latimer House, um, who people who've shot down pilots. So I was there the other right. day at Peenemünde, and I saw this rocket that's like, literally talking like that while yeah. being bugged. And, and yeah, uh, so the Allies know, but 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 they're not they're not a realistic prospect, are they? It, they're they're part of German propaganda, the German propaganda mindset in nineteen forty, the time we're talking about, aren't they? So no, absolutely. Uh, you know, and they've got, and, and the w- weird thing is they've got this. You know, they've got this nerve gas, which they this nerve yeah. um, chemical. What was it? Uh, 
Taban, which they don't use, which is you know they're planning to put into into V twos and things. I mean, it's yeah. just extraordinary. Yeah, uh, which really would have been pretty serious. So the yeah. wonder weapon threat isn't entirely. But to your chap on the, I mean, to the chap on the ground in Italy, it it's it you know if if that's the one whole of the thing things is just so pointless. I mean, that's that's yeah, that's know, the well, awfulness of it. I mean, you know, whether you're a ranger or a or a guy in Eighth Indian Division hacking your way through the, I mean, you know, just when I was there in October, you're driving around these kind of mountains. And you're thinking, really, what? So a major action happened here? I mean, this is just absurd. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of you know, eight hundred. 800 meters above sea level here. Yeah. This is just insane. You know, what, yeah. what on earth is going on with these sort of remote places and trying to fit these huge armies and mechanized forces into in, into a landscape that is just not ready for them. I mean, yeah. it's just... I mean, it's, it is interesting, though, when you think of the Indian soldiers, because after all, the, I mean, the, the point that gets made about um, Burma is that Burma is, you know, suddenly India is actually directly threatened by... Yeah. By you know, India goes. India goes from being essentially a sort of a behind the lines reserve place to actually somewhere that's been in you know because because after all the, the the fighting does occur in India at the, the, yeah. at the during a ch- large chunk of the Burma campaign. So India is transformed into a front from a from basically a, a, a rear area, so to speak, and that's how you mobilize Indians. You say, look. It, Look, all right. The Brit- you don't like the British Empire, but something's far, something far worse on your doorstep, and uh, uh, fight this lot off. And you know this, this argument that basically that's the deal for Indian soldiers: fight, fight, help us de- defeat the Japanese, and then we'll talk about independence properly. You know that's the the bargain. But if you're an Indian soldier in Italy. <laughs> Where's the where's the bargain? There's no well, bargain. Well, there isn't. I mean, the, but 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 you're talking about the fourth, eighth, and tenth Indian divisions. Yeah, you know, and they are all the kind of sort of pre-war regular yes, Indian army they're, divisions. They're, they're mobilization uh, plan, aren't they? Um, uh, well, and also, the, 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 you know, the 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 the, the Raj Patan and Punjabi um, and Patan uh, um, battalions are, you know, one must think of them in the same way that you do the Gurkhas. Yeah. You know, yeah, this yeah. is a career. You know, this is yes, yeah, what you signed up for. You know, you're there yeah, because professional you're, soldiers, yeah. you're, you're a professional soldier. And, and that's yeah. that. So it's not the same as, you know, the Indian divisions that are operating in, in you know, northeast India or Burma, I don't think. Mm. Um, I think that's the way to well, look at it. They are, I mean, I remember those... talking to a guy, who, Mangal Singh, who was in the um, – he was was a signaller in um, Signals Guy. Uh, no, he was a sapper. Mm. He was doing mines and whatnot. And, yeah. um, you know, he was in 4th Indian Division. And, you know, his prospects weren't great. He was in a rural area in yeah. northern India. He just thought, you know, the recruitment came around and he thought, well, it's a good career. Yeah. Well, and how Signed old up. was he? 20. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you'd, you think, all right, that might be fun as well. well. I might think that too. I mean, the, the, but the, and but the point... And off he goes, suddenly he's fighting the Apple but, of Alamein. But, but still... You know, it's still a, it's still a, it's still a question, isn't it? Because of after course. all, you, if you're that Indian soldier, you might think I ought to be in Burma, defend, or I ought to be at home defending India from from the Japanese, not here fighting this European uh, thing. You know, it's, shit's got real in India now. Suddenly, in a way, it, in a way, it wasn't when I joined when I joined the army. You know what you you know what I mean? And and after all, the, um, Indian. Indian public opinion was well, well um, uh, appraised of what had happened in Nanjing, you know, and what the Japanese had done in what the Japanese were doing in China. So, yeah. which after all was part of the 
part of the sort of yeah, thing that yeah, mobilizes mobilizes people. So it's just it's just this idea of if you, any of these any you can see you can see what might motivate a German soldier in 1943, but you especially because you must know deep in your bones that you're losing at this point. You must know how the yeah. hell have the Americans brought an army to to Italy in in two years flat? How the hell have they done this? And all those aeroplanes, you know yeah. that that um. Uh, Kesselring quote you, you you offered a couple of weeks ago where Kesselring's going oh it's it, it, the, it was a terrible day today because the weather was good and we you know the sky's black with allied aircraft or whatever you must know you he knows they must know and obviously Kesselring's talent was for was for improvising and keeping it going and yeah, I think that was the, Lemelson, wasn't it? That was Lemelson. Or was it Lemelson? But, but, yeah, but you know yeah. what I mean. He was acting so, army commander, yeah. But, but they must both, they all know. They must know in their bones. And you, 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 know, you know what I mean? And, and, so, yeah. and so, so it's. But it, isn't it interesting seeing stuff that's written in the moment? That's oh, what no, I just find so it, interesting. It's, it's just, yeah. It just changes everything. And, and, it's, and it's, yeah. it's that whole thing about priorities changing as well. Yeah. And, and what you see from someone like York Zellner, you see it in Kesselring, you see it from from you know our friend Jack Ward in the Fifty Sixth Heavy Regiment. Yeah, you see them change. You know what they think on Tuesday in September is not the same as what they're thinking when in Thursday in middle of November. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know things have changed. Yeah. You know you're allowed to change your mind. Yeah, yeah. Whereas sixty years on, when you're interviewed about it, you've You've kind of pretty much worked out what happened to you and where yeah. you fit into it, and and yeah. you're kind of happy with your anecdotes. You and, know, and you, you've extent, got them all uh, all uh, neatly arrayed, and it's not yeah. that they're not valuable; it's just that they're not in the moment. Yeah, and you might, and you'll say there were good days and bad days, won't you? You you, you yeah. won't go. I was, disp- I was, you know, we were despondent. Uh, and you'll say, this- "Oh, I remember this one time we were going up this mountain pass, and bloody hell, you know, it was pouring with rain." And when was that? Oh, I don't know. Sometime could it yeah. be November? Yeah, it might have been. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas now you're going second of November, mm. had an absolute shocker, going around a mountain mm. road, you know, blah blah blah, collapsed. Yeah. Someone turned over in a jeep and was killed. Yeah. We had to follow on behind. Blah yeah. blah blah, whatever it might be. And it's just, it's just, it's in that, it's in that moment. And you know, one thing I've been able to do, I think, is 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 use entirely. You know, I've lots of people where I sort of thought, well, I really need someone in, you know that division or that unit or whatever. Mm. But if I haven't got a diary or letters or I haven't got a memoir that was based on diaries, I tend not to use them. Yeah. And um, it just changes how you look at it. It's, it's fascinating. And, and I mean, we, we did a, the podcast a couple of weeks ago about 1943. Are you shifting your view on the year? Have you shifted? Is your view on the year shifting? Because after all, 1944 is the sort of climactic year, isn't it? Of the, you could argue the second world war where the, you know, the, the, the so-called second front is opened and, uh, you know, the, the drama of the last six months of, of 1944 is, well, the whole year. But is it, are you thinking now actually 1943 is where the, where the action is, Jim? And not just because. Yeah, no, I don't. But I, I think, I think I still maintain that Germany gets to a point in the failure of Barbarossa means that it's not going to win the war yeah. almost certainly. But yeah. I think 43 is definitely the big change here. And I, I, I totally agree with you. I've really come around to that idea. Uh, you know, I think, think doing that, doing Stalingrad in, in, in detail, I think was was just fascinating. What yeah. a sea change that was from yeah. from the beginning of September nineteen forty three to the kind of you know second third week of November nineteen forty uh, forty two rather to, yeah. to the to that that period in November where you know the the, the net closes in around Sixth Army. It's such a dramatic, rapid transformation over about six days yeah. from the start of it to 
um, Uranus to uh, to the start <laughs> where the where the where the kind of you know the door closes shut behind the yeah. Sikh army. It's such a a pivotal pivotal moment in every single way. So much more so than than just the battle on the ground. It is that that change in Stalin, the change in Hitler, all the rest of it. So yes, I'm I'm completely convinced, and um, I, I think the tragedy about Italy is they've already forgotten what's happened in Tunisia. Yeah. And, and, and Tunisia is so interesting because what happens there is they're not expecting the Germans to fight that much. Mm. And they're expecting to be in Tunis by Christmas. Yeah. Because they're the allies and they can and there's nothing. So, well, and, and the whole thing, whole thing drags out and the net result is, is sort of shipping crisis yeah. and it dragging on till May, which just sort of cocks everything up. And what they what they go do in Italy is exactly the same thing. They they go in with a set of assumptions which don't are not fulfilled in well, any the, shape or form. And, the, and the, the core assumption is: look at all this stuff we've got. Look at look at the preparations we've made. Look how well prepared we are. Look at the abundance of stuff we've brought with us. Our systems work. Our training's working. We keep beating them. Why won't they lay down their arms and surrender? Who wouldn't, when faced with this, give up? Is the is the core assumption that the Allies take with them into Italy, isn't it? And it's the core assumption they take with them. Into, I just don't know. I don't into know France that it is. the next I year. Think it's, I don't. I th- I think it's. Or is it I think it's, fever? What is it? We've set Overlord for May. Yeah, that's that's the biggie. But here we are in August, and yeah. May is nine months. You know, ten nine months away. That's three quarters, yeah. two thirds of a year. Yeah, we cannot do nothing in that time, mm. and of course they're not doing nothing because they've got the strategic air campaign. They're supplying Soviet Union with lend-lease. They're supplying the Chinese. They've got a fight in the Pacific. All the rest of it. They're not absolutely yeah. doing nothing, but yeah. but um, and they can't operate in the same way that the Red Army does because everything they do is amphibious. Yeah, but they're not thinking about it like that. They're thinking we have to keep going. Because we're here, we've got these forces here, and it would be wrong for our forces to sit on their asses till May mm. doing nothing in mm. the Mediterranean when we could do something and we could have a very, very successful and cheap victory. Mm. Because our intelligence, I know it's a bit dubious, I know it's not, not really good, is suggesting at the very least that the Germans aren't planning to fight south of Rome. So, you know, we get Rome, we get Foggia, we can, you know, further the, um, the strategic air campaign yeah. and get Italy out of the war. We can draw yeah, up lots but- of German divisions and we'll get Rome. The psychological advantage of Rome is, is great. And that's the bit they don't get, but it's almost, in a funny sort of way, it becomes the most important bit. And there's this absurdity halfway through where they suddenly realise, gosh, you know, Foggia is still getting, you know, the strategic air force, which is going to be built up in Foggia, which is in this flat bit in, mm. you know, central southern Italy. It's going to get. It's getting all this priority of shipping. You know, by November, middle of November, there are four. There is a backlog of forty-four thousand Allied vehicles waiting to come to Italy, which can't get there because they're stuck in ports waiting to be loaded up because yeah. the air forces are having the priority. Yeah, yeah. And everyone's going. But, but also because everything's behind. I mean, everything's behind schedule. I mean, after but, all, but, but, um, but the net result of that is is that you've got people sitting on a mountain. On yeah. Monte Corno, you know, three thousand feet above above the sea, doing bugger all for thirty five years, apart above thirty five days, apart from just being chipped away at. Well, but but that's because that's the limit of what you can do in that environment. Yeah, but the but the those two Ranger battalions lose forty percent in, mm. in that time. Mm. Well, because it's a defender's paradise, and that's the thing that 
But that I mean, just, you know, but, but, but which way round is it? But which is the chicken and which is the egg? Is the fact that you can't fight your way through Italy the reason there's a great big backlog of vehicles to be shipped, or you know? Uh, it's all it, to do with shipping, really. That's what I mean, it really, you really is. Because, be because if you had shipping, you would just outflank the Germans constantly yeah. in a series yeah. of amphibious operations all yeah, yeah, the way just go around and, them and they'd have done again. it really quickly. I mean, this yeah. is this is the tragedy. So the mistake yeah. of it is is the Americans digging in and going, "We're not going to budge on this." You know, Italy's great, but it, it cannot take priority over overlord. Everyone's yeah. going, "Yeah, but if you just gave us some more land aircraft, yeah, but they can't be everywhere. They can't be in the Pacific, yeah. and they need to get them ready for overlord." Yeah, yeah we'll yeah. just. Give us a double amount now, do it really quickly, and then you can have them all back by December. Yeah. But they don't do that. They go, nope, yeah, they've yeah, got to yeah. go back now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're, they're, hoisted, they're hoisted by their own petard. They're shooting themselves in the foot by their stubborn refusal to have any kind of flexibility over this. But there's also this feeling. There has been a feeling since 1939 that at some point the Germans are going to fall in on themselves, isn't there? That's the that's There's been right from the beginning, that's been the assumption, isn't it? At some point the Germans are going to – it'll collapse – and if you, they're under so much, you know, they're under so much pressure in 1943. It's like, 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 like the way I keep saying, you know, they've lost, they've lost, they've lost their battles that 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 that, that would have defeated Napoleon. You know, essentially the political realities of those battles. Uh, they, they, they've lost the initiative, completely lost the initiative on the Eastern Front. And that's actually that's what happens in Stalingrad. Is the initiative switches? It, it is. It's, yep. it's no longer it's no longer the the Germans making the running. It's the Soviets making the running from then on, you know. And even though Kursk isn't the Kursk is a quite different battle to the battle in Legend, yeah, where the, the the Soviets have a very very rough time of it. Actually, they still win, and so the writing's on the wall for the Germans. But I don't know. It's it's there's something really there's something really um really fascinating about that. Should be the moment when it's over, and yet it isn't. And the allies, are, the well, allies, the allied, the allied logic is surely if you can do that to Hamburg, if you were an allied government, you'd probably go. You know what? We haven't. We we probably need to think again about all this. If, if the allies were losing things the way Hamburg went or Kursk went, or but they're not. You know that the, 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 the Germans aren't doing, aren't acting rationally, and there's a permanent expectation that at some point something rational will happen inside Germany. That's what. That's the point I'm trying to make here. Yeah. Is well, that- I, I think there is a. I think there is a fair degree of that. I, I, I do think that's going on. But I think ultimately the failure of Italy of not getting to Rome by Christmas, for example, and the fact that it drags on through the sort of ghastly battles of Casino, and Rome yeah. doesn't finally fall till the fourth of June, 1944, is because of the chi- combined chiefs of staff. Yeah. I think it is their fault. It is not Alexander's or Montgomery's yeah. or Clark's yeah, yeah. or anyone else or, or Lucas. At oh, no, no, no. It's, a, it's, a, it it's is, a grand it is 100% mistake. Yeah. The, the, the combined chiefs of staff. And I think fundamentally the combined chiefs of staff works because there is a willingness to kind of to, to make sure it does work, even though they're coalitions and, and they're not yeah. bound by the, the constraints of, a, of, a, of an alliance. But ultimately, the combined chiefs of staff in themselves are a fudge. You know, it is it is yeah. it is war by committee, yeah. And it is, you know, by two nations who are working alongside each other, but fundamentally have different goals, aims, and hopes and yeah. aspirations. And so, yeah. every so often, that comes a cropper. You know, that yeah. just doesn't work. Yeah. And, and it's the same in any organisation. If you're if you're new, if you're new, you, you're making your big decisions by committee. There's always compromises because, mm. and, and compromises necessarily are are, are a fudge, and, yeah. and that's what's happened with Italy. Mm. Mm. 
and the tyranny and, of Overlord. Well, and you're up the tyranny of Overlord. Okay, it's very good. The sh- in the shadow of Overlord, essentially, there's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, I th- well, now there's something we need to do um, before we before we say goodbye. Eighth um, uh, to the tenth of September this year. If this is your kind of thing, this kind of chat. And particularly 1943, um, of which it's the 80th anniversary, we have we have Ways Festival um, in Black Pit Brewery uh, near Silverstone, um, just off the M40, for your yep. delect- delectation. Tickets are on sale. Like-minded people, uh, uh, a, a very amply supplied beer tent, although the first festival, it got drunk dry on the first night, and so Never we had again. to recalibrate. Never again. Shipping issues, obviously issues of shipping. Um, uh, and then and ta- there will be uh, dark green vehicles driving around, one or two khaki vehicles as well, or desert yep. sand vehicles driving around. Yep. Um, and will be the sound of, of musketry. Musketry. All your favourite speakers um, from the festival, plus our listeners who've become, as a result of this uh, podcast, have become historians themselves, uh, talking about the things they want to talk about uh, in our sort of uh, We Have Ways Fest fringe. And we would love to see you there. But um, uh, we'd love to see you there. Um, and the big idea as well is that we're, we're hanging out. Come and say hello. Um, uh, uh, it's a very, yeah, yeah, very we'd fr- love to see you. It's a friendly thing. Um, uh, anyway, thank you very much for listening. We will see you all again very soon. Uh, cheerio. Cheerio. Cheerio.